This program is brought to you by the Provost Teaching Fellows at the Faculty Innovation Center of the University of Texas at Austin. I want to see UT be the Hogwarts for space. I want to be a professor at Hogwarts. Six <laughs> ways till Sunday, I will always say that's what I want to do. Hello, Dr. Jaw. How's it going? Good. Thanks for joining us. Obviously, you know Asha Jane as a star student here at UT. We're lucky to have crossed paths with her, so I thought she would be a great co-host for our conversation today. Nice. All righty, then we'll get going. Who we are as people shapes who we are as teachers. About how our lived experience informs our teaching. Uh, we can be flexible and adapt and change this. You're, you're free to do that. We don't have to have it perfect. We are about getting folks together from all walks of teaching life. The key phrase you, you suggest there is it, it has to be done collectively. We have so much to learn from the other side of campus. <laughs> from the University of Texas at Austin, this is The Other Side of Campus. Hello, my name is Stephanie seidel Holmston. I'm an assistant professor of instruction in the College of Liberal Arts and a provost teaching fellow. Today, I'm welcoming a new host to the conversation. I've invited Asha Jane to join me. Asha and I met in the fall of 2019 when she was an undergraduate student in the Brumley Next Generation Scholars Program. This is a small cohort of nine students chosen from across the university for their commitment to public service, work on policy proposals for a few months, and then we head to DC to meet with the people that are forming those policies. Asha, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be a part of the conversation. Today, we are talking with Dr. Mariva Jaw. Dr. Jaw is an associate professor in the Department of Aerospace Engineering and engineering mechanics. His research interests are in non-gravitational astrodynamics and advanced and non-linear multi-sensor and object tracking prediction and information fusion. His expertise is in space object detection, tracking, identification, and characterization, as well as spacecraft navigation. Dr. Jaw is a member of the Astrodynamics Committee of the International Astronautical Federation and a permanent member of the Space Debris Committee of the International Academy of Astronautics, IAA. Thank you again, Dr. Jaw, for joining us today. I wanted to start a discussion by exploring your path to aerospace engineering. What drew you to the field? So first of all, thanks for having me and pleasure to be here. I would say that my path was extremely non-traditional. I went to a military school for high school in Venezuela and I'm born in the United States, but went to Venezuela when I was six, pretty much grew up there. And after high school, came back to the US I wanted to be in the U.S. military and the Air Force seemed to be possibly a good fit. And after I graduated from high school, I enlisted and I, I became a security policeman. I was a cop in the military and I was stationed at Malmstrom Air Force Base in Montana. And I didn't even know where Montana was kind of thing when I got my orders. So I was a very, uh, very new, very scary kind of experience to be in a place that was so unpopulated. And, you know, having grown up in Caracas, there's just, I don't know, 7 million people, you know, skyscrapers everywhere you look kind of thing. And, and just lots of light to the point of on a good night in Caracas, you can see the moon kind of stuff. So the skies, yeah, the skies are not so dark. And so when I went to Montana, I think the one of the things that really struck me, they call it big sky country, and there's something to that, 
is I'd never really seen skies that dark before in my life. And whenever I did night shifts out in the missile complex, so missile field as we called it, I would see dots of light moving across the skies and they were too slow to be meteors and not planes. And then I, something clicked within me is like, wow, like this is stuff that people have put into space that somehow I can see with my naked eye that's reflecting sunlight. Wow. So that was like kind of a, a, a mind-numbing kind of thing uh, for me to realize. And I think that was the first time that my curiosity and wanting to understand things in orbit kind of, you know, was planted. I grew up in Houston, so your story is ringing true for me. We would often go out to Big Bend and I can remember sort of laying out there looking at the sky and thinking, oh my goodness. And I, I love the city. I, I'm definitely more comfortable in the city, but I can see how that big sky Montana just lit up some things for you. Absolutely. Yeah. How did your tra- like your work in Montana then matriculate into an academic pursuit of aerospace engineering and, and lead you to where you are today as a faculty member at UT? This is a really long story that we don't have time for me to get into too much. So I'm going to try to just be a a bit brief. I wanted to have a career in the military. That didn't really happen for a variety of reasons. And I did my four years and got out. Okay. Before I got out of the military, a friend of mine said, listen, man, you've guarded these missiles. Wouldn't it be cool if you actually understood how these things worked, how rockets worked and all this other stuff? And I said, yeah, I mean, that would be amazing, right? And and he's like, ah, well, you know, there's this thing called aerospace engineering. Maybe maybe you should study that and, 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 and figure that out. And so, yeah, I did my four years. I started as an undergrad at 23, so I was non-traditional. And there's like a whole series of things that I had to overcome in order for me to just get admitted into a university and and study this stuff. And I mean, I didn't have any sort of like calculus and stuff in high school. I was already behind. I was like, didn't have all these kind of really technical stuff in, in high school, like, like, you know, students here in the United States. And I had done like four years of just standing with a gun, you know, guarding, guarding nukes. So there was no, there was no academic preparation for me, you know, to go into an aerospace engineering program, which was like, getting waterboarded. I would imagine. I would imagine there are some areas where students are really sort of well-groomed in particular environments with science and math exposure. I could imagine the young person with tutors and whatnot ready, and here you are at 23. I was so intimidated by the process and things like the amount of student loan debt that I acquired and all that speaks to how unprepared and you know, unmentored I was going into this stuff. So I basically, it was almost like I went through this haphazardly. Wow. But you knew when you started that aerospace was the field for you. It was like, I just, this friend of mine in the military mentioned it. That was like one of the only reasons I just like pulled on the lever and I'm like, I'm just going to try this out. And when I when I first started at, at uh, you know, Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, my academic advisor actually advised me against studying aerospace engineering. He's oh, like, no. oh yeah, he's he, he's like, listen, man, 
you didn't take calculus in high school. You're already 23. He, he gave me the, the whole Yoda line. You know, you're too old to become a Jedi thing. Yes, too old. Too old to begin the training. You're too old, too old to begin the training kind of stuff, right? So it's like, that was the way that I got treated. And that really solidified it for me because years ago, I remember somebody telling me, don't let anybody's opinion become your reality. And I'm like, I'm not gonna let this person's opinion become my reality. I came here to be an aerospace engineer. I'm gonna find out what that is. I'm frightened. I'm scared to death, but I'm gonna do it. And my my definition of courage is, courage is the absence of paralysis in the presence of fear. I'm not fearless. I have lots of fear, but I don't let that like anchor me. So I'm like, I'm gonna strap this one on, let's do it. And it was scary and it was painful experience, but I got through it. So tell me about what that looks like for you now that you are mentoring students. You must keep those things in mind as you're engaging with students. Yeah, so really, I think the thing that really characterized my own path is that I had a very strong intellectual curiosity that I wanted to satisfy. I was hungry for opportunity and I was willing to be as self-directed as need be. And I just wanted a chance and just prove myself. So when I, when I work with students, I'm very focused on students that have those sorts of similar traits. They're the ones I definitely want to help. I will say that one of the things that's very much surprised me is to see the extent of a lack of intellectual curiosity. It feels, I don't know whether or not it's true, but it feels that there's just, I see it, a lot of folks seem to have this sense of entitlement that, oh, well, you know, if I'm here and I'm going to study this, then, then yeah, I mean, I, I better get the I better get the NASA job and I better get the whatever and I better get the A in the class because it's like I showed up and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you got to be hungry. The opportunity means you have potential, but you actually have to execute to turn the potential into reality. I love working with students because it's great to see the amazing things that they can do. And in fact, I would say this, a lot of the students that, 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 that I work with, there's so much beyond where I was at their stage. I'm like, wow, if, if these are the things that I've achieved, for sure, you should be able to like, you know, lap me many times over because you're so much further along in understanding and all these things. And I was at the stage that they're at. So I just, I don't like being prescriptive. I think people need to find their own path. I like to be more of a mentor, even to my own graduate students. If I have to give you the recipe and hold your hand, that's not the type of person I am. I'm here to empower you. And, and I'm here to, to provide you with some guidance and some light touch, but you need to like walk. Dr. Joe, I'm certainly one of those students who has benefited from your mentorship and guidance and have really grown because of that. And I wanted to ask, where are you going now with your students in this intersection? For me particularly, I was working in space debris and space law, and I was wondering, how are you mentoring your students towards um, this sort of interdisciplinary intersection? You know, along the path, I've heard more, no, this isn't for you, you don't belong than the other, right? And I just don't accept that clearly. And I believe that there is a scientist that lives inside of everybody. And to me, 
you know, science is not something that is constrained to getting through a classroom experience or a textbook or any of that stuff. Because I believe in the the actual meaning of science, which is Latin for knowledge. And we all have that inherently. We, we know stuff because we're human and, and we're sentient and all these things. And so, and I remember, I remember when I was in high school taking some, some physics kind of stuff is the first time when I could predict the outcome of some event. Oh, okay. If I'm on this building and I throw a rock with this much force, it'll hit the ground and, you know, so many seconds and blah, blah, blah. It's like, once I could do that on my own, it was very empowering because I'm like, wow, I have knowledge. I don't have to ask somebody to tell me what's going Like I can make my own observations, come up with my own hypotheses, and I can test this stuff. And it's like knowing what that cycle was. And I, I want that for everybody. I'm a truth seeker. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like I love transparency. I love trying to find truth that's hidden. I'm like, I am the world's demystifier. It's like the thing that really seems to be something that you can't understand is actually probably a convolution of simple things that do things repetitively in the same way, but you add a dash of randomness and you get the beautiful complexity of of life and experiences that we have. But Mother Nature operates on simple principles. And if you're very observant and you kind of know a couple of these, then you can like decompose and reconstruct a lot of what it is that you're experiencing. And everybody has the opportunity to understand that. And so that's my mission. And so the whole idea of bringing science and policy together is because the answers to wicked problems are all transdisciplinary. And you you don't get there with just the astrodynamicist and just the social scientist and just the lawyer. And and, and I use transdisciplinary because the outcome has to be from the nexus of all these disciplines. Like I hear people say, oh, uh, multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary. It's like, no, usually when that happens, it's a, it's a bucket of individuals. Each one of them thinks that they're really awesome and they have the right answer, but it's not the melange. What I try to do is I try to really skills together, put them in a bucket, just like when you combine all the colors, what you get is gray. And the thing is, yeah, blue, red, all these colors contributed, but but once the answer comes out, you won't be able to tell me how much of the answer in this individual, that individual, that individual. That's where I want to be. That's where the research is focused on. Because people use diversity and inclusivity a lot. For, for many, I believe they're just like buzzwords. And, and people say, okay, well, what's the difference? And to me, inclusivity is when diversity has a voice, dictating what the outcome is. That's inclusivity. So we were just in the hill country, looked up at the night sky, and we saw Jupiter and Saturn. How do I get into this field? How do I start deepening my understanding of what's out there? Yeah, so been able to put together at UT this this app called Astrograph. And, And the thing is, it is kind of a, a ways for space. It's, it's, it's multiple uh, databases and registries that kind of all get dumped into a common framework that you can see, oh, wow, here are all these, all these dots around the planet are human-made uh, things that are, that are orbiting the planet right now. And so it's, it's Astria Graph, and if you Google that, you'll, you'll be able to find it. But yeah, it just shows you where a lot of these objects notionally are, are located. And we also have this project called Eyes on the Sky, 
So if you go to eyesonthesky.org, you'll find it. And what we're trying to do is raise awareness because most people don't recognize that we humans are polluting space in many similar ways that we've we've done with oceans, atmospheres, and land and that sort of thing. And so we want to have, you know, be inclusive and say, and space. Space also needs to be environmentally protected. And so Eyes on the Sky is trying to give people a mixed reality experience to raise awareness for that. I think a lot of that comes from a trip that I took some years ago to Alaska. I, uh, I lived on Maui for like four years when I was working with the Air Force Research Lab. So I saw the disparity between native Hawaiians and, and other folks and really saw environmental impact on the island that was very moving and, 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 and troubling in many respects. And then years ago, I went to Alaska and took my son Denali uh, with me to, to see where his name came from. And I had a very moving experience where I just felt, I felt enveloped by, I don't know, let's say by a, a, a presence, some sort of like energy was, was, was around me. And it just, it's, it just felt very old, very, very old, but, but almost like wise. And there was a sadness uh, that was very pervasive. And it's like within my mind's eye, I saw how humanity has lost balance with life in general. And I almost felt it's like I saw indigenous people, certain pockets of indigenous people that have preserved that knowledge to this day. I didn't know what the name of it was when I had this experience in Alaska, but it's like I could see this. And I felt that what I was being asked was, was I willing to do whatever I could to help humanity remember how to be in this balance and move away from the concept of ownership to custodianship? So I said yes, and, and that's really when I started becoming less just focused on the pure science of all this stuff and, and now have, have a public-facing aspect to the work, writing, trying to get op-eds, podcasts, these sorts of things, and trying to connect with the rest of humanity and say, listen, turns out indigenous people have figured this out for millennia. And we've kind of forgotten this and we need to remember because it's in our own interest. Well, we are very curious to learn more about Eyes on the Sky and we both really enjoyed exploring your homepage and watching the video that's there. Can you tell us more about how you plan on engaging students and the average day person, this stuff is quite technical. And so I'm curious as to how you're breaking it down for these people. Yeah. So it's back to how I said that everybody can get this and the, the knowledge isn't just for a select few. When I look at the indigenous communities, and we've already had some interviews of some, some elders, specifically some elders in the Diné, also known as Navajo, just their concepts about their relationship to the sky and what does this mean and how how have their night skies been changing as a result of more people launching stuff and this is how we're going to engage people is to say ultimately we we all come from stardust space is in our dna and we use we use our sky to to understand our relationship amongst things here on the planet and, and, and knowledge from the sky tells us about seasons and, and, and when to go hunting for things and, and, and all these, and just start laying this out and saying, this is a common thing to humans. 
and a very minute number of people are altering this without asking you about it, without considering your feelings or opinions about it. And I'm done with that. I'm done. And the thing is, people are doing this legally, but legally does not mean that it's ethical and it does not mean that it's long-term sustainable and we need to have an inclusive dialogue. And so this experience is reaching out to humanity to say, you have agency in how we explore space. And by the way, when I hear people talking about settling other planets, we're going to go to the moon, going to go to Mars and all sorts of stuff. Elon says we're going to be a multi-planet species. It's like if we right now, you know, the four of us went to Mars, what would we find? Trash. We'd find some dead rovers. We'd find some parachutes flapping in the wind, broken heat shields uh, uh, scattered across the Martian surface. Like we're doing it again because, oh, Mars is big and who cares? And, and I'm going to call this, you know, now that this rover died, I'm just going to call this, you know, some monument. We can't keep doing this. And here's another thing, right? I think eventually we're going to have to populate other celestial spheres because, you know, there's a finite amount of space and, and, and land on, here on Earth. And so we're going to have to figure this out. But the thing that I'm already telling people is, Imagine the first people that are actually born on Mars. There's no global magnetic field. There's no big moon that orbits every 28 days. The, the, the gravitational acceleration is different. Humans are going to evolve on Mars and they're going to look different. They're going to look different. And it's like, if we here on Earth can't get along just based on the differences in how we look here on Earth, imagine... We're going to start a war with the Martians that came from us. It's like it doesn't make sense. So we need to start thinking about how we are much more similar than we are different and start the conversation there. So that's how I plan on engaging people in this experience. So tell me more. What would it look like if we acted as custodians rather than owners? I love that concept. Yeah, so, so I feel that outer space might be infinite, but near-Earth space is finite. And because it is, we need to manage that resource in a common way. We need to define what the carrying capacity is of the, that environment to sustain space traffic and all that. And when people come to try to get licenses to launch, we shouldn't just say, okay, well, we have our own laws, and so we're going to have a way to just let you know Acme Incorporated put 20,000 things up there. What we need to say is the carrying capacity doesn't belong to any given nation state. It belongs to humanity. And so we have to have some sort of global governance that says capacity is a leased thing. Humanity is going to lease this capacity to you. You can borrow it for a number of years, but you have to give capacity back at the end of this stuff. You can make some money out of this, but the capacity does not belong to you. It belongs to humanity. To me, that's where the custodianship is going to come into play. Once you do engage people and get community activism, what do you hope that people will do? Or where do you see this action bubbling up? So I want some of the people to actually participate in how we craft this stuff and be part of the fabric of figuring out how we should be behaving in space, what those norms and standards might be that are you know, respectful and honor our relationships and all these things. 
So I want that to be part of it. But yes, there is an aspect of this, which is the people that are in a place that have been entrusted with properly using their pens and papers actually represent this desire for inclusivity and how we apply this custodianship. So yes, through elected officials and that sort of stuff. So I want, I want people to say, look, there's no, there are multiple ways that I can uh, participate and help and, and contribute. And uh, I think it, it, it means that we need to look at all of the above way to do that. When I watched Eyes on the Sky, it reminded me of an article that I read in early fall in the Houston newspaper. I was visiting my dad in Houston. And because of NASA's proximity to Houston, there was an article about the International Space Station that has already in 2020 made three pivots to avoid space debris. Were they really in harm's way? So, so the answer is, for all we know, yes. And the thing is, is that this to me speaks to this carrying capacity. If we, if our decisions and our actions can't prevent the loss of, of life or services and capabilities, then the capacity has been exceeded. And so if our normal way of doing business means we have to be getting out of the way of these warnings more and more and more, it becomes something that eventually there's so much traffic that you're always moving around. And then, and then you've lost the ability to really do the things that you wanted to in an unhindered kind of way. You know, when you're talking, it also reminds me a lot of what we know in sort of political science world about climate change, this idea of the problem of the collective action. If you would pay the price to clean it up, but I still get to enjoy it clean, I will just let you pay the price rather than contributing. And when you're talking, it's making me think a lot about the literature around climate change. You must see those parallels too. Yeah, big time. And well, the thing is, a lot of people have told me, hey man, you know, space debris is not a climate change problem. It's like, well, understood, but I have two things as a response. One, where do you think you get a lot of your climate change data from? It's from satellites. And then two, in and of itself, it's not climate change, but it still requires environmental protection. And so what I'm trying to get people to, to do is not use climate change and environmental protection interchangeably because they're not necessarily the same thing. We need both. We need to think about climate change and environmental protection, but they can be you know, different things. Dr. Jaz, you know, I spent time in the Brumleys researching Martian space debris as well as corporate oversight of ventures in space and how they are regulated through the United States government, I discovered that it's very difficult for the U.S. government to oversee corporations. How do you see the rise of new space ventures and the problem of space debris and what the U.S. needs to do about it? When I look at Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty, it says states are responsible for providing authorization and continuing supervision of all activities of non-state actors, space, earth, moon, you know, beyond kind of stuff. And if I'm, if I'm the U.S. government and I am the entity that's liable legally for the actions of corporations and stuff, then if I'm going to be authorizing their activities and I'm told that it's my responsibility to also provide continuing supervision, because I don't have sensors ubiquitously placed all over the galaxy, I'm going to require that companies provide me with information to help me hold them accountable for 
their actions and their activities. I've raised this with some people in the U.S. government before. Some people have pushed back and said, hey, if we if we require companies to have to provide this extra information, they're not going to want to. I'm going to stifle commerce and they're going to go someplace else. I'm like, it's the only right way to move forward. Because if companies are behaving in ways that can't be monitored or supervised by the government, which is the, the liable entity, then it's game over. Then, then we're, we're, we're back to the gold rush days, the mining towns with silt in the water and mercury deposits. And right, we're going to fall into that because people are going to be doing a race to the bottom to get as much cash as they can at the expense of, it's like, oh, well, who cares? Maybe it's a problem in 200 years. Who am I to say? So I'm just going to do this because it's legal. I think the government needs to be less skittish to avoid another term and require, require companies to provide whatever information is needed to help the U.S. government actually keep to this providing continuing supervision. Of course, that makes um, complete sense. One of the issues I also came across was that the military in the U.S. houses a lot of the technology and radars that we use to monitor what's happening in space. And not until recently in your work that there have been crowdsourced um, applications that also track resources in space. How does your military experience and your understanding of the U.S. military play into the role of giving the U.S. the tools to regulate space independent of corporation data reporting? You know, because the, the military is also a user of space, it's in their best interest to be part of crafting norms of behavior and making space as transparent and predictable as possible. Clearly, the military has things that they're not going to be transparent about by definition. And so this is where augmenting information from, from non-military sources makes makes a lot of sense. But I will say that, that the 18th uh, Space Control Squadron and U.S. Space Command are the the world's largest providers of free and accessible information about stuff in space. When you're describing these solutions, transparency and others, they demand, it seems like to me, international coordination. And I think about your time in Venezuela my family, we lived a handful of years in the Bahamas. So you begin to see the international potential. But many would argue right now we're in a time of sort of a rise of nationalism, reaffirming borders. Are we going to get there? You know, I have to tell you, Stephanie, I've seen I've seen evidence of this as well, of this rise of nationalism and these sorts of things. I believe that if we have no kidding uh, demonstrations where a coalition of the willing come together and show art of the possible in, in how collaboration can actually scale and help solve some of, some of these problems. It starts informing uh, the citizenry of these countries and and then those people may, may have some license and agency to then tell their elected officials, you know what, yeah, we can be proud of our country, but at the same time, we need to solve this collaboratively with other countries. I love that idea that you can be proud of your country and see international collaboration as a solution. There is- Yeah, because I can tell you this, right? It's like, I am extremely proud to be American. And having grown up in Venezuela, I can tell you that culturally, I'm a lot closer to, to Europe, culturally. 
and how I grew up. You know, some people are like, oh, you know, the U.S., this, that, and the other, they have lots of things to say that may, may not be so awesome, but it's like, hey, listen, my story of going from, you know, a cop to leading transdisciplinary research in, in space security and traffic and all this other stuff only happens in for me in the United States. And so I'm extremely proud to be American. And at the same time, when I go to other countries to, to speak, it's like, yeah, it's not just what the U.S. thinks or what Americans want. But again, it, you know, this is a, the heritage of humankind sort of, sort of thing. And so I'm very receptive to the opinions and thoughts of other countries, even ones that may not be big participants in space. Some countries in Africa, it's like, you have an opinion too. Just because you don't have a gazillion satellites out there and you haven't been launching things since the 1960s does not mean in any way, shape or form that your opinion should have smaller or lesser weight than other folks. And so, yeah, I'm proud to be American. And at the same time, I know that, you know, American exceptionalism does not mean American stuff by itself. I did a study abroad program in Santiago, Chile, and Chile's doing remarkable things around climate change. And we went up to the Atacama Desert. I think it was very effective to see other countries' leadership on climate change and space mm-hmm. outside of that sort of U.S.-European partnership. So do you think our students are interested in being a, a part of the Coalition of the Willing? Are young people politically active, do you think, today? I think so. I think they're more so than I've seen in the past. And I think that they genuinely believe that they can make a difference, which is awesome. It's like you, you got you to gotta have that kind of self-belief to keep you going. And so, yeah. And I see more and more students that actually have greater interest in being transdisciplinarians than I'm just going to study this one thing and be kind of the stovepipe. I see more and more people like, hey, I want the policy and I want the this and I want the that. I'm like, cool. I think that's what's needed. I, for one, certainly want to be part of your upcoming or, or, or future space debris protest. I would definitely mark that on my calendar. I wanted to ask more about how you're making inroads at UT with other departments, specifically the LBJ school and the space uh, or the law school. There's talk of making a space law center. How close are you to realizing that? When it comes to these things, the grassroots from the ground up is slow, but it's the one that is on sure footing. I tried doing this at the University of Arizona and I failed because it was a top down kind of thing that doesn't work. And so, yeah, I mean, I've been, I'm going on four years here, but I can say that, you know, we, even though my, my faculty lines in aerospace, I have uh, great relationships with people at the Texas Advanced Computing Center to bring them on board into this. As you know, you know, I have this uh, space security and safety program in the Strauss Center. That's been great. And working with Brumley fellows uh, through that. Um, there are folks from LBJ that have started what's called TX SLAPS, Texas SLAPS for Texas Space Law and Policy Society. They've been trying to basically get kind of a, a, an upswell of interest in having something that's dedicated to space policy on campus. I've had a couple of interactions with faculty at LBJ that aren't space people, but have expressed an interest in maybe diversifying and going in this direction. As you know, Bobby Chesney, he's a law faculty, but also the director of Strauss. He's interested in eventually seeing a space law sort of you know program on campus, but it's kind of a crawl, walk, run sort of thing. 
I'm working with folks in TV, film, media on campus as well, you know, leading, you know, like Aaron Riley from Moody Communications, leading this whole eyes on the sky kind of stuff. At the VPR level, I've started a space safety, security, sustainability, or what I call Space S Cubed, a research interest group to try to get people to start talking together about how do we do this as a campus-wide thing. And I, I've started as an affiliate faculty member of Environmental Sciences Institute to try to motivate the creation of a space sustainability program within environmental sciences. So we're, it's slow, but, but it's there, it's growing. And, and my vision, Asha, is I want to see UT be the Hogwarts for space. I want to be a professor at Hogwarts. I'm serious. It's like six <laughs> ways till Sunday. I will always say that's what I want to do. Do you want to go in space and be an astronaut? No, no, no. I want to be a professor at Hogwarts. That's what I want. And so um, much like people are in different schools, but everybody takes like, you know, the dark arts course. I want to see something like that at UT where people can get their different degree programs, aerospace engineering, but everybody takes this one class that brings the policy, the law and stuff together to get that kind of broader, you know, understanding of what it takes to really solve some of these problems. So, so yeah, so my goal is for UT to be like the Hogwarts of space and we'll see. Well, that sounds absolutely wonderful. It certainly jives with my future goals in the intersection of law and technology. Um, so excited to see where that goes for UT. I wanted to pivot towards your experience between high school and college. You took a gap year that was quite uh, determinative for your future and it showed you your passion for aerospace engineering. Would you recommend other students to take a gap year either between high school and college and college and grad school? I mean, my gap time was four years. Actually, it was six because I went to Venezuela for two years to do some soul searching. So so my gap was large. I don't know that I'd recommend the six year gap, but I do feel that culturally we tend to press, I think, very quickly with, with people trying to figure out what they want to be when they grow up sort of thing. I don't know that it always is the right thing or is very meaningful. I will say that I found a lot of benefit to not thinking about what I wanted to be, but trying to find out what I did not want to be. And it's a kind of a different way to think about it. I call it my refrigerator approach to things in that refrigerators don't cool, they remove heat. And so I focus on having experiences for the sole purpose of letting me know if I did not want to do that again. And so by doing that, by removing the things from my list, like I definitely don't want to do this, I definitely don't want to do that, by taking those off, I had a surviving set of stuff. And what I actually do in my career now is, is one of those things. So, so it's like, by definition, I know that, that, that anything in that pool of surviving stuff is going to be something that I'm, I'm okay with because I've gotten rid of the things that, I, that for sure I didn't want to do. You know, I'm sure the uh, Quidditch teams at UT will be thrilled to hear that you're starting <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Uh, so, I mean, you were just spot on with that comment. You know, a common theme that we think about is the way that we learn through failure. That published article has a number of crummy drafts standing behind it. That smart classroom activity had to, you know, fail a handful of times before we got it honed in. 
sort of where is your edge right now for what's possible, what's next for you? In terms of uh, like where the research goes or, or? Yeah, or maybe even, you know, you sort of you personally, when I think of these collections of experiences that kept me growing, I always want to know, am I sure that my life is full of enough experiences that are keeping the rough edges there, right? What I want to do, I realize that I have this inner calling to try to solve this this environmental problem in space. And I want to reach across humanity to basically help everybody discover the scientists within them. For me, I want to get to the point where I feel and sense that I, and I don't mean to be morbid in any way with this, but there, there will be a day when I have no tomorrow. And that, that is guaranteed. I want to know that when that day comes, that things will continue in this direction, that, that there's enough momentum driving humanity towards more harmony and balance and sustainability in my absence. And so that's kind of where I'm headed. That's really impressive. And clearly to me, you are sharing that passion with your students. You know, Eyes on the Sky invited all of us into this highly technical field. Asha knows this. She could run circles around us Brumleys when she was talking about Martian debris and we were trying to catch up. And yet there's a way that it's so accessible when you focus it on your own experiences and your desire for harmony and care. I love that idea of being custodians, not owners. Yeah, I'll even put it this way. And maybe one day I'll get some, you know, biography out there, but I've I've gone through a lot in my life, a lot of pain, a lot of trial, a lot of tribulation. One of the things that I experienced after leaving the military and before I I, I started college were people that pretty much told me that if I ever left the military, I wouldn't amount to anything and and I'd be homeless and, and all that stuff. And my life was actually going in that direction. And... There was a time period when when I ate from dumpsters. I spent several months doing that. Both my parents have passed away years ago, that sort of stuff. And the thing that I have to say is this, I want my pain to be of benefit to others. That's what I want. I want want the stuff that I went through to be, whatever price I paid going through these things, to help people not have to go through that and to be of greater benefit to society. And so that's really the thing that's driving me. It's the thing that moves me. If I think about it too much, it moves me to, to, to the point of tears. It gets me very emotional. I want my pain to be of service to others. And certainly as we all find that scientist within us, right, that is the continuation of that of that work. I really appreciate it fascinating to think about some of those experiences. That one person that told you, you know, have you thought of sort of aerospace, right? Or or the people in your lives that said, no, you you won't be able to do it. You know, how do we how do we stay open to the things that folks have to say to us that might cue something we hadn't considered? And yet how do we know our core enough to be able to say I'm not gonna live into that. Right. Yeah. yeah that's not easy. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. Great talking to you all. Just going to thank Dr. Ja for his time. I really enjoyed our conversation. It's been so wonderful, as I mentioned before, learning from you and growing from your experiences. 
I'm definitely appreciative of everything you've done for me. Well, you know, pay it forward kind of thing. I'm, I'm just here to here to help. So thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks for your time today. Absolutely. No, th- thank you all. And, and uh, if you want to know anything else, you want to, you know, just, you know how to reach me. Very good. All the best. All right. Cheers. So Asha, what really resonated with you from that conversation? Well, I found that it was inspiring that Dr. Jaw opened up about his past and really connected his life experiences to where he's going and where he wants to be. I can really relate to that as a student. It's very challenging and sometimes very intimidating as a college student when you look at your professors and how successful they are. And I really appreciated him expanding on his concerns when he was in my position. I also really loved the discussion about transdisciplinary instead of interdisciplinary, as well as the discussion on inclusivity. I'm a woman of color in engineering, and that means that I face that diversity and inclusivity challenge often. And I appreciate his work and his effort to not only transpire across racial and gender boundaries, but also interests and studies. So I think Dr. Jaw is doing amazing work here, and I'm excited to see where he goes. Asha, I'm with you. That idea of inclusivity being something even more than diversity, not just at the table, but making a difference, having a voice. That was very powerful to me, too. I'm looking forward to the Hogwarts as well. I hope that comes to fruition. That's right. (laughs) That'll be great. That'll be great. Yeah, that'll partner nicely with those Quidditch folks there out on the LBJ lawn, right? Exactly. Well, thanks so much, Asha, for joining me today. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Other Side of Campus, a production of the Provost Teaching Fellows at the University of Texas at Austin. For more information and to provide feedback, please visit us online at texasptf.org. Thank you.